HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on a special bonus episode of Meet and 3, we're celebrating Mardi Gras with an ode to the king cake, the most delicious custom of carnival season. This is kind of like terrible comparison, but it's kind of like a braided New Orleans babka, if you really think about the actual technique of it. Do we know why they put a baby in the cake yet? You'd better be careful where you get that cake because your friends and coworkers in New Orleans are going to have an opinion about it. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. And welcome to a special segment of HRN Happy Hour. Um, our guest today is in town from Kentucky, and we couldn't let him go back home without sitting down to talk with us. I'm Hannah Forden, HRN's program manager, here with Dylan Hoyer, our special projects coordinator. Hello, hello. Um, so Kentucky is known for, I'm going to say one product above all else, and our guest, Brent Elliott, is an expert on it. And if you haven't guessed... We're talking about and very soon sipping on bourbon. So Brent became master distiller at Four Roses in 2015, and he's been involved in producing Four Roses bourbon since he began at the company in 20, 2005. Is that right? That's correct. And um, so you were the distillery's director of quality, um, and your experience has led you to uh, develop all these brand new limited edition products, and you have a chemistry degree, which I'm always interested to hear how things like that tie into your career. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so what is in front of us, Brent? There's there's so much bourbon. Yeah, we have two of our four standard selections that you can get in the U.S. Uh, we have the small batch and the small batch select. Now, the small batch, this product goes back to 2006. So this was released shortly after we came back to the U.S., there's a long history with Four Roses. We actually go back to uh, – we were trademarked in 1888, and we started out in Atlanta, Georgia. We moved up to Kentucky. We were actually sold through Prohibition, which is pretty interesting. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that you could still get whiskey during Prohibition for medicinal purposes only. Oh. Yeah. So you know, whether it was a 
cough, uh, infected toe. I don't know exactly what kind of ailments. Um, but at the time, it was real by not everyone, but many people did truly consider it a legitimate medicine. Did you need a prescription for you it? You did need. Yeah, it was treated just like uh, medicine today. You had to go to your pharmacist and you could get a prescription that was good for one pint of whiskey every 10 days. That is so fascinating. And what is it like? I mean, you've been a part of the Four Roses team for a while now, um, but the history of the brand extends long before that. I'm yeah. curious how that longstanding history and kind of iconic status informs how you see the future of the brand and the future of the flavors you're going to be bringing to it. You have so much to play with. Yeah, absolutely. It uh, it really sets the stage for, I guess, a lot of pressure <laughs> on all of us today at the at the company because there is such a long history and so much heritage with the brand. And it's iconic all over the world. Mm-hmm. So everything we do now, we're we're laying the groundwork for the story for the future. So what we try to do is appeal to the consumer who is always changing. And I'll get into how we're doing that with like the small batch select here in a minute. But uh yeah, we have to we're always trying to make the maintain the legacy of the highest quality bourbon. Um very mellow, very smooth, something that everyone will enjoy, and to offer new and exciting releases like our limited editions or our private barrels. And it's really just trying to to give something to the new modern consumer. And the bourbon consumer of today is much different from even 5, 10, and certainly 10 or 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Today, people, they're so knowledgeable about all aspects of bourbon, the history, what it takes to be bourbon, the different brands, the different flavor characteristics. And so to to keep ourselves exciting for, for the new consumer, we try to offer up new expressions, new products that that uh, really showcase what we can do as a brand because we're unique in our versatility. And that's it's about our 10 recipes. What we do is we create 10 different bourbon recipes. And then at the end of maturation, we'll take these recipes and we can mingle them together in different proportions to create truly different bourbons. Mm-hmm. So it's not just different ages or different proofs if you're going from one of our products to the next. It's fundamentally different based on the different recipes that we used to create that label. And how far do those recipes go back? Did you start with all 10, with five? How have those come to be over time? It's kind of uh, it, it's hard to really pinpoint exactly where that started. It goes back to... It was after Prohibition, sometime in the Seagram's era, when they were our parent company. They had many different brands, and they used different recipes, different facilities to create all sorts of different spirits. And they'd bring them together to mingle them or blend them into different products. In a lot of cases, it was like Canadian-style blended whiskeys. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of how they functioned. So this is kind of um, a next generation of that. We took from what Seagram's was doing when we were bought by Kieran, the Japanese beer company in 2001, we took what they were doing to make some of their bourbons and we pulled that out and extracted just that essence of their production, I guess uh, the way they produce their 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 adherence to, to a consistency and blending mm-hmm. to create a product. So we took that out, we took the recipes that we needed and then we started just making Four Roses bourbon. Whereas we were a piece of a bigger company. Four Roses was just a brand. Then when we were purchased, Kieran bought the brand, the facility, and we continued focusing just on Four Roses as a Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. 
And for listeners who might not know um, all of the levels of differentiation, can you talk a little bit about what sets bourbon apart from whiskey, rye? What Absolutely. is it in the yeah. flavors and the ingredients that make it special? Okay. Um, you know, it's really difficult to be a straight bourbon whiskey. There are a lot of guidelines you have to follow. So it's one of the most highly regulated, if not the most, um, as far as the stipulations that have to be followed to call it bourbon. So first, um, a misconception is it has to be made in Kentucky. Uh, even people in Kentucky still think that. Less and less all the time, but in reality, it has to be made in the United States. That is true. That was uh, Congress declared that in 1964. And um, then you have to use at least 51% corn. That's because that's part of the flavor profile, that the sweet, the, the corn flavors that are in there. Then you have to – there are a lot of other guidelines as far as distillation proof, barreling proof, has to be aged in a new barrel. So there, you have to follow these guidelines to call it a Kentucky – or to call it a straight bourbon whiskey. To be a rye whiskey, you have to make it – the majority of the grains, it has to be uh, rye. Wheat whiskey, the same thing. Corn whiskey, the same thing. So there are a lot of little caveats under that umbrella of bourbon whiskey that have to be followed – and it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to make a good product, but if you follow those guidelines, it's going to be in the neighborhood of a straight bourbon whiskey. Mm-hmm. And you use a blend, right, of of corn, rye, and yes. wheat. Um, yes, we do. Um, well, no wheat. Uh, no. A lot of bourbons do. We use corn, rye, and malted barley. And back to the 10 recipes I mentioned, yeah. we actually have two different mash bills. A mash bill is a grain recipe that we use as a base to get those 10 recipes. We use two mash bills, and we have five different yeast strains each one of these yeast strains, as it ferments the mash, it creates different flavors. So the two mash bills, five yeast strains, that's how we get the 10 recipes. That's so interesting. I'm curious what your thought is on, you know, you mentioned the consumer becoming more and more educated. And here in New York, several um, distillers got together um, a few years ago and created the New York rye whiskey category, which has um, higher requirements to make it a New York rye whiskey. And what do you think of that further specification of the market? Do you think we'll be seeing that in other places as well? Uh, possibly. I think that's pretty interesting, and I think it's great. Um, you know, rye, I think the home of rye is more in the Northeast. You know, Kentucky, that's as, the, as whiskey evolved back, you know, the 17, 1800s, that was part of it as the settlers moved further west they were really just making do with what they had, and corn was was readily accessible, and it grew well. So that was sort of part of how whiskey evolved, or bourbon whiskey evolved. But well before that, there was rye whiskey because this the area around here is more uh, more conducive to growing rye. So I think that's fantastic, um, and I like rye whiskeys. And if you look at our mash bills, we use a lot of rye. Of all the bourbons, we use more rye than just about anyone else. Because I like the flavors of rye. We like the flavor that rye imparts. It's part of our flavor characteristics. Nice. Yeah, it has a little little spicy quality. Yeah. So um, why don't we take a little sip on the small batch select, and you can tell us um, the story behind this recipe. Okay. So small batch select, this is – we just released this last year. was released in May in just five states. This year we're going to launch – I can tell exactly how many more right now, but more than five, but we won't be in all the states this year. Within the next two years, we'll be all over the United States. Uh, this one, this one that I mentioned that's kind of catering to the, the new consumer, this is non-chill filtered, and it's a higher proof. It's 104 proof. And this is a combination of six of our recipes. It's, um, we've never put these six recipes together like this before. It's both mash bills. 
It's our V yeast strain, which creates a delicate fruity flavor, our K yeast strain, which creates more spice, and the F yeast strain, which I really think is the key to some of the nuanced flavors here. Mm-hmm. That creates a nice herbal, clove-like, sometimes minty-type flavor. So, And, you know, bourbon barrels are kind of they're, – they're highly coveted um, for other – you know, use in other alcohols, but what role does barrel aging play and what sort of characteristics are you looking to get out of that process? We estimate that about two-thirds of all the flavor come from the barrels and all of the color. Two-thirds, wow. Yeah, a lot of those flavors. It's hard to really quantify that scientifically, but uh, most of the flavor does, it definitely comes from the barrels. The um, All the color, when it comes off the still the mat, or the distillate, it's crystal clear. Mm-hmm. So what you're seeing here is the influence of the oak, the color from the um, from the wood, and the flavors that you get, especially the sweetness, the caramels, the vanillas, the uh, sometimes coconut, some of the spicy flavors. A lot of those, if not, again, probably two-thirds of those come from the wood. And are you using identical barrels across your recipes, or do the barrels vary as well? No, we are consistent in our barrels. We're always at about a level uh, four char. And we like to keep all that consistent. We keep our warehousing, everything as consistent as possible so that we have the control on the front end with the recipes we produce and then on the back end with how we pull the different recipes to mingle them together to create the flavors. My name is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, a super-duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. Cool. So as we mentioned at the top, Brent, you have a degree in chemistry. Um, And I'm so curious how you wound up becoming a distiller. Was there another career path that you had (laughs) originally imagined for yourself? I I wonder that sometimes, too, how I got got here with that. Uh, Really, I love chemistry. I love science. I've always been curious to know how things work. And it always just kind of made sense to me. But I never, ever dreamt that I'd be making whiskey with a chemistry degree. So I just kind of lucked into it. I was working other jobs doing things not nearly as exciting as making bourbon, but I was using um, some analytical type equipment that, again, isn't very exciting. But looking back, it was perfect because when I saw this opportunity at Four Roses, what got my foot in the door, I was hired as an assistant manager in the laboratory to set up the lab. And a lot of the equipment that I had experience with was the same equipment that they needed to be set up at Four Roses. So I started out just in the lab, just sort of in a lab coat, in a back room, all by myself. But we had just come back to the U.S. That's when Kieran had purchased the company. We'd been sold overseas exclusively from the late 50s up until 2001, 2002. So we were pretty new in the U.S. So we really had, it was a skeleton crew in management in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, where the distillery is. And so when I started, it was basically a startup company here in the U.S. We had a lot of support overseas, and we had all the marketing and sales, and all that was being done in Europe. But here in the U.S., where we were just coming back, we uh, we really weren't weren't staffed for to expand, to grow. And because of that, I was in on the ground floor. So I had the opportunity to grow with the quality department is, is the route I took. I started first, besides the analysis, I started looking at barrels, tasting. Now, fortunately, when you're talking bourbon, quality control means a lot of smelling, a lot of tasting. It's not all specifications and SOPs. But um, 
So I just kind of grew up with the company that way. Mm-hmm. But again, I never dreamt that I'd be using my chemistry degree for something that I could care this much about, something that I love this much. Mm-hmm. So I'm very fortunate. And I'm curious because I think one thing you don't necessarily associate with traditional chemistry is having it be a multisensory process. Like it's, it would often be dangerous to smell or taste uh, another chemistry project you're working on. So how did that kind of expand your understanding of what's going on in your work? Yeah, it was kind of – it is strange to bring those two together because usually – like my nose is an instrument now. We have a sensory lab that we treat as seriously as we do our analytical equipment, actually more seriously. But that's incorporated in what we're calling the science of making whiskey. And it's really the nose and the palate. That's the most important part of it. We have very sensitive instruments. We can look at different compounds down to you know parts per billion. And I can tell you exactly what's – in this class of whiskey, and the instrumentation can tell you exactly what's in it, but it can't tell you if it's good or not. So yeah, this is one branch of science where (laughs) there's some interesting and thankfully so human interaction with the process. And for someone who started as a chemist and made your way into food, what are some maybe techniques you can impart on our listeners to hone their sense of smell and taste? You know, I think it's different for everyone. I think just doing it and really focusing on what you're doing will help you to learn your own palate, um, your strengths, your weaknesses. Uh, like probably the hardest thing for me was learning how to um, – just learning my own palate, like how much time to take in between tasting samples, how tasting samples back-to-back might affect my palate. Because I know one thing that's – might be getting off on a tangent here, but one thing sort of particular to my palate that I've noticed is if I'm tasting two barrel-strength samples back-to-back – the second one, the harshness increases for me. Because if you're having 120 proof whiskey, even if it's mellow, you're going to get some alcohol in that. And so if I'm tasting two samples I, back to back, I really can't tell you which is more mellow. I have to leave about five minutes in between, mm-hmm. drink some water. Other people I've noticed, it's almost the opposite effect because their palate gets numbed from the first sip and the second one seems smoother. So it's things like that, just learning your own palate, uh, of course, learning what you like. And I would recommend not getting too intimidated or too um, too worried about all the descriptors. I get I see people all the time that you see you know, it's like a, a poem. Sometimes when you read the descriptors of of what you're supposed to see in a whiskey, you know those are just suggestions. And you'll find also that if someone suggests you're going to see something in a whiskey, you just you'll probably see it or a wine or a food, especially some of the more complex layered products or foods or whatever it might be, because a lot of those with complexity, you do have different flavors going on inside whatever it is you're, you're experiencing. So I'd recommend just being true to yourself, tasting it. There's nothing wrong with just your review being you like it or you don't. That's perfectly <laughs> fine. I tell people that all the time. But it, it is a lot to take, especially as much as um, people write about bourbon now as much as easy as to find reviews on just about every style of bourbon, every brand, every label. So, yeah, just keep it simple. And ultimately, it's what you like. And you know what you like better than anyone else. So mm-hmm. don't That's be, so don't worry about it. It's so funny that you say that about kind of how suggestible our brains and palates are, because I think, you know, one might sort of have a wine vocabulary or or have a bourbon vocabulary. But if, if like you mentioned coconut when we were tasting the the small batch select, and as soon as you said that, I was like, oh my gosh, I taste coconut. Yeah. 
And and I don't think I would have like honed in on that flavor before. So it is it's like a good it's a nice play between like um is it am I imagining it now that you said it or am I now appreciating it because my I've been turned on to that uh-huh. possibility. That's funny. Yeah, we in the sensory lab, like that's a no no. That's like one of the rules is don't don't throw any words out there until we're all finished tasting. If we're discussing or evaluating something because mm-hmm. it throws everybody off. And so what is your favorite way to drink your bourbon? It's neat. I don't always drink it neat, but that is my favorite way, the way I drink it most often. But I enjoy cocktails. I enjoy it on the rocks. I don't necessarily like it when I'm making the cocktails, but in the hands of a good bartender, I love experimenting or experiencing good and unique cocktails. We were lucky enough to sip on a turmeric hot toddy last night and... That has been, I just had my first hot toddy not very long ago, and it's been a great introduction to whiskey and bourbon for me as someone starting out who might not be ready to drink their bourbon neat uh-huh. yet, but <laughs> <laughs> a good introductory cocktail. Yeah, and you can pretend but, it's it's medicinal again, absolutely. going back exactly. to prohibition. It's tea. That's right. <laughs> um, so should we taste the small batch and compare? Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about what differentiates these these recipes and the different traits that will come out. Okay, with that last one, as I mentioned, you're going to get a lot of mouthfeel. The the F and the V yeast strains really work together to create a unique fruit that coat the palate and create a long, long finish. This small batch, this uses, the, it's both mash bills again, but it is the K yeast strain, which is spicy, and the O, which is a very rich and deep fruity type flavor. So with this, you get the balance of the fruit, the spice, very rounded, very chewy, very nice long finish. The walls are coming down around us. <laughs> and this one is 90 proof. It's about the same age. These are both minglings or blends of six- and seven-year-old bourbons. It is a bit Tell spicier. what you think. Right? I definitely noticed that the the small batch select was definitely felt like more, more fruity to me um, and a little bit like juicier. This is like spice. It's a little sharper and spicier. What do you think, Dylan? I'm also curious. I agree with that. And I'm wondering about the aging. Suggestibility. (laughs) (laughs) All of it is ringing so, so true to me. Um, I'm curious about the aging process and across the various recipes, if, you know, how the aging process differs and, you know, whether you're combining whiskeys of different ages and some of these small batch selects and how that might work. Yeah. Um, that's part of the magic of of the aging and one of the other variables that we can throw in to create new products. Uh, with these, we try to stay consistent once we have a profile established. So I know pretty much from bottling to bottling, six- and seven-year-old whiskey, and we're never going to go less than six just because we're open about our ages. So it's always going to be six- and seven-year-old bourbons. Um, it, if we needed an eight-year-old to go in there to hit the profile, it would happen. But – Six- and seven-year-old whiskey will pretty much guarantee that we're going to hit this this profile as long as we pull the right batches. And there's a lot of behind-the-scenes blending, um, pulling of samples, putting them together. That's where it kind of looks like um, a scientific lab like you traditionally think of. It's where you have the test tubes and, or the cylinders and you're measuring out and doing these different test blends. So there's a lot of that that goes on. But age, to your question, is really important. Um, with these, again, since the flavor's established six and seven years, that's about where these are always going to be. But if we're looking at something like a limited edition, which we do each year, and these are um, 
limited releases of thirteen to 14,000 bottles. We do them every September, and they can be anything. It's the most fun I have every year because it's pulled from our oldest, probably mo- the, uh, the rarest, the batches that we have, and it can be any age, typically between 10 and I think the oldest we've done is a 23-year-old batch. We'll take these together and mingle them in different proportions of different recipes, different ages, to create something that's both unique and smooth and mellow and, of course, just very good. So that is – the 10 recipes I didn't mention, that was historically for consistency. Mm. And so we're still trying to do that. But with these limited editions, consistency goes out the window, and it's all about blending something that is unique and something that's just truly different. And we were talking earlier about how the who's drinking bourbon is shifting. Um, and I'm curious, based on your own perspective and the research you've done at Four Roses, like who was a classic bourbon drinker? I mean, I, I don't I think we might associate it with like an older um, drinker, like who's drinking bourbon now? And, and what do you think that shift is? Is it just people are more curious? Well, I think I can tell you a lot of people the younger generation moved away from the brown spirits mm-hmm. like in the 60s and 70s. That was you know, not cool. That was the their dad's drink. It was part of the establishment. So everyone kind of went towards the lighter spirits um, and kind of left whiskey behind. So I think really what happened is it was just kind of sitting over in a corner and, and just kind of forgotten about. And what's happening now is people are just rediscovering it because nothing's changed. It's always been there. It's You know, America's native spirit, it's fantastic. And I think just people are giving it a second look. And I think there are a lot of reasons why they are, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of cultural reasons. A big one, I think, is the shift that you see in consumers just going from maybe what was, you know, the fast food culture, sort of rebelling against that, the the big package store type mentality. I think people now are looking for more of a handcrafted, something with a story, something with some heart. And that's exactly what bourbon is. It's got the heritage. It has a story. It has the uh, handcraftedness. And and now, thanks to consumers, it has um, – we have a variety of offerings. Mm-hmm. You know, I say that we always, as distillers, we're happier than anyone because of the resurgence because we've always had these special barrels. We've always known what we could do. But 20, 30 years ago, when each producer had like maybe three bottles on the shelves or three labels, and that's – all that was needed to satisfy the consumer's demand, that was great, but there was so much more to offer just from our inventory, you know, the differences in ages, differences in barrels. And so now that the consumer wants to try this, it's so much more fun for us. We can actually go out and hand select barrels, hand select um, or hand blend batches. You know, we can do a lot more um, innovation, more just more variety in what we produce. And you also recently expanded your distillery. Is that right? Tell us tell us a bit about that process. We did. Yeah, when we came back to the U.S., again, we'd been sold in Europe and Japan for a long time. So those were and still are healthy markets for us. But once we came back to the U.S., it was right at the beginning of this, this bourbon boom. So since then, it's been very difficult for us to keep up with demand. And it seems like everything we do, we're always just catching up. Because no one foresaw this this type of uh, this type of growth, and in 2013 we realized that if we kept on that same trajectory of sales that we'd been following for the last six seven years, we would run out of whiskey, and so we kind of had that moment where we decided we better do something about it. So we went to our parent company in Japan, Kirin, 
and we sent them a proposal. We said, we need to expand. We need to do it one way. We want to do it on site. We want to do it under the same roof, and we want to double our capacity. We don't want to change anything up much because, again, with bourbon, a lot of it, there's a ton of science behind it, but there's also a lot of, there's some variables that maybe we don't understand, which really, I think, makes it interesting, kind of brings the art into it. So we sent the proposal. It was pretty big. It was a $55 million project that we proposed. But fortunately, Kieran understands quality the same way we do. And they said, well, if that's the only way we can do it, then then go ahead. And so we started the project in 2015. And that's exactly what we've done. We've doubled our capacity wow. in Lawrenceburg. Uh-huh. So, And when I say double, we literally doubled everything that we had one of before, we have two of. So two stills, two cookers, two for every fermenter. We now have two. And we're adding new warehouses. We've built one new warehouse already at uh, Cox's Creek, our warehousing and bottling facility. We've put in new bottling lines. And all of this is just to accommodate this growth here in the U.S. Wow. And I assume you're expanding your staff as well. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, so as we were talking about how bourbon has such a has such a – grounding in in history um i think it also has a, a lot of grounding in in place i mean it's so tied with agriculture the grains we're using absolutely um what sort of food especially food that is um native to lawrenceville and native to kentucky do you think brings out the best in bourbon and vice versa oh that's tough. Uh, <laughs> What's your favorite? You can speak to just your favorite. I'm pretty simple when I do like food pairings. I like bourbon and steak. Mm-hmm. It's very simple. Uh, but I love bourbon-infused desserts. I love bourbon-infused – and I do a lot of bourbon dinners, so I get to try a lot of these. It's almost – I should should be easy for me, but I think I've tried so many different varieties of bourbon-infused dishes that it's hard to really name one. But that's that's big in Kentucky now. The the culinary scene, especially in Louisville, has really blown up over the last 10 years. And I think a lot of that is they're going hand-in-hand with, uh, with the bourbon industry. They do a lot of innovation, a lot of uh, fusion with, with bourbon or incorporation of bourbon into their dishes. Nice. Well, I'm sure the bourbon industry is a really big draw, so it, it makes sense to kind of build everything out from there. Yeah, it is. We've, we're well over a million visitors a year now on the bourbon trail. So it's almost like an industry to itself. That's amazing. Well, we were just plotting before we started recording that Team HRN is is wanting to go uh, explore that part of the world. So maybe sometime soon we'll us. yeah we'll they'll be recording live from from <laughs> Lawrence Bourbon Trail. Yes, from it's the Bourbon Trail. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much, Brent. This has been really really well, thanks fun. Thanks for having me on. Um, and yeah. You'll have to let us know next time you're in New York, and it would be fun to come come see the facility down in Lawrenceville. It sounds like a massive endeavor you've got going down there. Um, so, yeah, thanks so much, Brent Elliott. Well, thank you all. And um, listeners can look out for the new limited edition products coming from Four Roses. It sounds like you'll be expanding the market very soon. Yeah. Okay. Thanks so much. I'm Hannah Ford, and thanks to my co-host, Dylan Hoyer. Thank you very much. HR and Happy Hour is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.